That was a wonderful song, full of the truth of God. And some of us know those words experientially, don't we? And we thank God for what he does. But only he can take a storm and turn something good out of it, right? And thank you to Jenny, who has a gift from God, obviously, and she's willing to to exercise it all for the benefit of this church. We truly are blessed, aren't we? And all those things are contained here in this book called the Bible, which is the, the greatest book ever. <clears throat> and I can think of no more important book than this. And it's sad that people think that you can't understand it, and even worse, that the major religions of the world say you have to have their help to understand it. Well, I'll tell you something, God would not keep his word from people like that. His word is available to anybody who wants to know it. So let's dig into it this morning. We're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to open your Bible or your app. 1 Corinthians, this is the uh, Apostle Paul writing to the church of Cor- at Corinth about a really, really important subject. In fact... It's the most important subject in the whole world for all of time. Bet you can't wait to hear what it is, huh? Some of you, though, who are listening to me are going to hear this and and not think that it's the most important subject. You're going to look at me with a kind of a puzzled look. But hopefully by the end of today, the message today, you'll understand, you'll see, and you'll What's more, agree. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to go through the first, um, let's see, the first two verses phrase by phrase. You want to pay attention to the words. This is how you know what the Bible says, right? It's written by God. If you think it's light reading or there's nothing there, you couldn't be more wrong. So let's take our time in the first couple of verses here and go through it. Verse 1, Paul writes, Now I make known... To you, brethren, he's making something known. He's made something known to the believers who are in the church at Corinth. He says, the gospel which I preach to you. What is the gospel? Let's stop right there. If we go out and ask this question to the people, and I've done this, do you know what the gospel is? A lot of people will say, well, that's the Bible. And others might get more specific and say, well, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. To some extent, that's, that's true. Um, the meaning of the word gospel, of course, is good news. The good news. And Paul says he preached it to the Corinthians. It's not likely he preached the whole Bible to them or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, huh? Because they weren't even written yet. So he must be speaking of something else. And we understand that it is a message because he did preach it to them. Now he reminds them of what they did with this message in verse 1. He says, which also you received. Okay, They did more than listen, right? They received it. They didn't fall asleep. It did not go in one ear and out the other. Now the, They received it. The, another word for the meaning of receive is to take. Whatever Paul said, they took it. Or as we like to say, we take it to heart. Okay? 
Then he says in the next phrase, in which also you stand. This further describes how they received it, doesn't it? It was a message that had something to do with a change in their life somehow. In believing what they heard, they made some kind of decision as a result, and it affected their lives. You don't take a stand for something and nothing changes, right? In the 1800s, when people heard that there was gold in California, they believed it. And how could you tell? (laughs) Because there was a mass immigration to California, wasn't there? I heard there was a bunch of ships that brought all these people here, and they didn't need the ships anymore. They had to sink them right there in the the harbor. (laughs) They left everything and came to California and searched for gold. They believed something. They took a stand for it. It affected their lives, didn't it? Many people we see say they believe something, but you can't tell that it really affects their lives, doesn't it? You almost, you, well, you doubt that they believe what they say they believe. Let's go to verse 2. Verse 2, he says, By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the words which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Whatever it was they believed, it saved them from something. And if you need to be saved from something, it usually means you're in some kind of danger, right? So, what was this message? Well, Paul spells it out in verse 3. And you know these words well, most of you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So there he is emphasizing the importance again, isn't he? And it's something he received himself, and he took a stand as well. So what is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There it is. That's it. The good news. So now if we take this good news and we go down to the newspapers or to the television station and say, hey, you got to tell the people about this good news, do you think they would do it? We can't expect it to see on the, on the front page of the paper tomorrow. Why not? Because it's not good news to them. So some of you know full well why this is good news. But others of you, as I suggested, are listening to me and saying, hmm, I've heard this before. This is common religious knowledge. This is not news, much less good news. So you're not excited because it's common information to you. Why? If that's how you feel, you need to ask yourself, why do I feel that way? Why is this not good news to me? The problem here is that good news is really not possible when there's no bad news. Don't you agree? If you and I are on a cruise ship lounging out there in the sun and I take the life preserver and try to give it to you and say, take this, you need it, you're going to look at me like I'm crazy and say, well, I don't need that. Pass me the suntan lotion. I need that more than anything. And you would be right. Now, if you fell overboard, that would be bad news, wouldn't it? And then I tossed you that life preserver. I just gave you good news, didn't I? Now that life preserver means something to you, and you don't care about the suntan lotion anymore. So in order for us to see the gospel as good news, we really need to understand the bad news first. 
which is not always enjoyable, but if you want good news to be good news, you've got to understand the context, don't you? Well, consider what the good news is, according to Paul. It has to do with the death of Jesus. Now, what could the bad news possibly be? Bill McDonald always said, you need to look at the Bible with a question mark for a brain. Not questioning what it says, but asking questions, why does it say it, right? Okay, to understand this, we've got to go back in time. And in fact, actually, we're going to go back before time began. We're going to go back to when God created the first beings, which were the angels. As you read the Bible and study at angels, which we don't have time to do this morning, but if you did, you would notice that there are certain types of angels, aren't there? And which means they have certain jobs and responsibilities. There's order in heaven because God is a God of order, isn't he? There's a hierarchy as well, and this is where we want to zero in on it. We want to look at the top angel, the highest angel ever created. He was called Lucifer. And we need to make something clear because Google doesn't. Google messes it up. Google says that Lucifer is just another name for Satan, and technically that's not correct. Lucifer was the highest angel in the hierarchy of angels. He was a defender of the throne of God, which shows his place among the angels. He was there at the throne of God, not all angels are there. His name meant light or morning star. But Lucifer sinned and was renamed Satan. The names usually reflect the person, don't they? You see that all through the Bible. He's no longer Lucifer. He's Satan, and there are many other names which he's called by as well. But this morning, we want to look at first Ezekiel 28, where God calls him the king of Tyre. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 17, Ezekiel speaking. He says in verse 11, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite and emerald, topaz, onyx and jasper, Lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created. They were prepared. You get some idea of what Lucifer was like by reading the description, right? You should be seeing that he is, was the greatest angel. God is singling out him out and, and describes him like he does no other. Now we learn what happened as we continue in the verse. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones your heart became proud on the account of your beauty and, your, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made you a spectacle before the kings. And let's look at one more passage, a few verses in Isaiah chapter 14, 
verses 11 through 14. Thy pomp is brought down to the grave and the noise of thy vials, which is musical instruments. The worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. That doesn't sound good, does it? That speaks of death, doesn't it? How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? And then verses 13 and 14 really zero in on on, uh, Satan's attitude, his perspective. 13, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north which is a throne where only God sits. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And there's a clincher. I will be like the Most High. You see the five I wills of Satan. There it is, extreme selfishness in all its ugliness, really. And you see the origin of selfishness. I know some of you, like me, you've taught your children about the I problem, right? For those of you who are not familiar with that, it's seen often in the child who can be demanding sometimes and says, I want this and I want that and I want to be first and I want to sit in the front seat and it's I, 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 right? And all its ugliness. We've seen where the I problem came from. But it's not limited to just children, though, is it? How many times in our history have we seen a person or a country say, well, I want this other country? Or even worse, where a man says, I want to rule the world. I want. When we exhibit the I problem... This is the question I ask my children. Who are we being like? Do you want to be like him? I think the answer is no. Yeah, we can behave just like him. For man, this all began in the Garden of Eden. And uh, we want to look at a couple of key conversations there. We'll look first at Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 15 and 16. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Simple rules, huh? Not a big religious system here, right? One thing you can do, one thing you can't do. But don't eat of that tree or you'll die. It's like use a gun, go to jail. Move over to uh, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. That's not exactly what God said, but she knows the consequences, doesn't she? 
Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. And this is the biggest lie that's still believed today. Verse 5, he says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like what? Like God. Doesn't that sound familiar? Satan knows all about that, doesn't he? And we've seen human behavior when people act like the whole world ought to be revolving around them, right? You know, who are we when we behave like that? God? I'm sorry that position's been taken. Besides that, there's not a one of us, or even all of us combined together, that comes even close to being like God. No, not even a close second. Let's go back and see what happens. Satan says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Was that a lie? No, that's true. They did know it after they ate, didn't they? But was it a good thing? Absolutely not. You see, Eve fell into the same eye problem that Lucifer had that turned him into Satan, didn't he? Didn't she? Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Let's go to verses 7 through 13. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Why would they do that? What were they afraid of? What was the problem? Was anything wrong with their bodies? No. God had made them perfect. So why did they try to hide them? Because they didn't change out here. They changed in here. Right? That's the real problem. Don't we have that problem? We do, don't we? We struggle with our minds, don't we? And we try to hide things too, don't we? Now you know how it all started. Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. How sad. To hide from God. They first tried to hide the bodies from the self. Now they're trying to hide their bodies from God. So verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Notice that fear is coming up again, right? They had never known fear until they disobeyed God. Do you realize that? Disobedience, sin ruins everything. The first sin, if you think about it, was pride, wasn't it? Committed by Lucifer, who then became Satan. Have you thought about what the second sin was? A lot of people think that it was eating the fruit, but that's really not the case. Eating the fruit was actually the third sin. That was the actual disobedience in action. Now think about it. When Eve was tempted with the fruit, she had a choice about about whether to eat the fruit or not. But before that, she had a choice about who she believed. 
Did she believe God, the one she knew and had given her everything? Or this newcomer to the garden who said that God was keeping things from her? She chose not to believe God. The second sin was unbelief. Unbelief is a very serious sin. She decided to trust Satan and believe him. And she took a stand, didn't she? You can always tell when someone believes by what they do. She demonstrated her belief with her actions, and so did Adam. And Adam was supposed to take care of her, and he didn't do that, did he? He was accountable to God, but he followed her instead, didn't he? He took a stand too, didn't he? How do you think Satan felt about all this? Now he's thrilled. He loves it with an evil love. He did not care about them. He wasn't trying to give them something better. His deception worked, and it worked really, really well. They bought it hook, line, and sinker, and it still happens today. It's especially sad when you see a similar circumstance happen to a young person. A young person who grew up in a home where they were cared for by their parents all of their lives. And maybe those parents even taught this young person about God. Consider this. There are many stories, but consider this one because this one's very common. You have a 16-year-old girl who meets a young man in high school and they fall in love. The parents being concerned for their daughter because she starts changing in her behavior and the things she does, and they're concerned about her education because right now that's what's important. So they try to put some limits on this love only to run smack into rebellion. The girl yells at her parents and tells them she's in love and they're going to run away. How many times has that happened? And I've thought about this and I wish I had time to really develop this, but I don't. But think about this. You take a piece of paper and you split it into two columns. In one column, you put a label that says parents. In the other column, you put a label that says boyfriend. In the first line, I want you to put how much time each, each of those has had with this girl. Big difference, isn't there? Now I want you to make a list of everything that they've done for this girl. Again, that list is wildly different, isn't it? One is very long and one is very short. Do you see the travesty there? The boy easily has influence because of the physical part of the relationship. She is led by her own desires, and all her friends, who are in the same think mind as her, encourage her to disobey her parents. And the parents oftentimes have no choice but to watch ignorance and rebellion ruin a young life. Or some young people go off to college, and their professors teach evolution as if it was a fact. That was my experience. And some even make fun of the Christians in their classes. And sadly, these young people buy the lies, hook, line, and sinker, and then you just throw in some drugs and alcohol and immorality and more ruined lives. Just like Adam and Eve, they don't believe their parents who have given their lives for them. They believe in themselves and science and their peers. And this is all because Satan's objective is to destroy what God loves. And he's good at it. It's easy for him because we believe him. Where do you think the concept of rebellion to authority came from? Who was and is still the biggest rebel? None other than Satan himself. 
Let's go back to the garden and listen some more to what happened. And I want you to notice that God is going to ask questions to Adam and Eve. He doesn't say anything. He just asks them questions. And they dig themselves into a hole. In verse 11, it says, And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And he did, didn't he? But who does he blame? He blames God. Do people blame God today for things? So God turns to Eve and asks her a question too. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And who does Eve blame? The serpent. Was it really his fault? Did he twist her arm? She had a choice. She had a choice. What do we call what Adam and Eve are doing here? I see this at work a lot. You you see it at work and in homes. Finger pointing. It wasn't me. It was them, right? Not me. Not me. Not me lives in everybody's house, right? And works at everybody's job. And some of us have been pointed at and blamed, haven't we? Only to turn around and do the same thing. Now you know where all this started. I think we just squashed the thinking that the Bible's not relevant today, don't you? Let's look at one more chapter in Genesis, chapter 4, which we'll just look at a small part of for the sake of time. Starting in verse 3, Genesis 4, verse 3, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of, of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So you have to understand, like their parents, they'd been given instruction, and Cain simply chose not to follow them. Flat out, do kids do that today? Now let's look at the response and see if this is not uncommon either. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And watch how God deals with the masculine questions too. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Do the right thing, Cain, and all will be well. He's getting a second chance. But anger is a dangerous thing, isn't it? Hasn't uncontrolled anger caused a lot of harm over the centuries? <laughs> harm is, is hardly describing what it's done, huh? Picture what God says here and see if this is what you've experienced as well. Look at verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The sin of anger is like a loaded gun or a clenched fist, isn't it? It's highly subjective before we use it. In our minds, we convince ourselves of our right to act. We rationalize and justify until the cows come home. And then we explode, and it's all wrong. And it makes things worse. And it happened to Cain. Look at verse 8. Cain told his brother, told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Anger mastered Cain. He did not master it. Been like that ever since. You should be seeing a pattern here. Since before time began, sin ruins everything. It continues today, and it's in each one of us. There is a a number of lists of sins in the Bible, which we we can't read all of them, but 
I want to read Romans 1:28 through 32 because the first time I read this when somebody was sharing the gospel with me, it was like my eyes were open. I go, wow, I can't believe somebody wrote this. Verse 28, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarrelings, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. Think of the radio, the television, and the internet. Huh? This, to me, this is one of the one of the sins that has the most potential because we have the ability to invent more ways to sin. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyways. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That sound like the world we live in? Not a day goes by where we don't see these things, see them done, or maybe we can encourage others to do them. So I'm talking to people. Some have actually replied to me, well, I'm not that bad. And God knows my heart. To which I have, I can only reply with the scripture and I say, yeah, you're right. God does know your heart. Let me tell you what he says. In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, it says, and then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, and every slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. And some will still insist and state to me, we're not all that bad. We do some good things. I know some good people too. And by comparison, you're right. Some people do some good things. But compared with God, we don't even come close to the definition of good. If it were true, then our history books would read differently. And the news would be different. And the newspapers would be different instead of what they are. They'd be the opposite of what they are if people were really good. So let's be clear, people can do good, but we're not good. People are capable of doing good things, although we should be honest. Much good is done with ulterior motives, with, for even for practical purposes. Uh, yeah, the expectation of something in return. It's not true goodness, is it? Man must try to get along in order to survive, too, right? So there was a lot of personal uh, uh, reasons to do the, to, to try to do good or be good. Those who can do good things also do the bad and have the bad thoughts, right? We have the potential to do more than we really do. It's like a brother was talking about earlier. It's, it's not always what we do, but it's, in fact, inherently what we are. A lot of these people that we call good would be the first to say, too, oh, no, I'm not that good. Now consider God. All that he does is good. He is unable to do wrong. He's the standard for goodness. We cannot say people are good in light of God. 
People can do good, but they're not good inherently. God only does good because he's inherently good. There's a huge and vast difference. And actually, the fact that people can do good actually condemns them further. Have you thought about that? If I know about good and I know I can do good, but I choose not to, what does that say about me? Remember Cain? God even warned him and he chose not to do good, but he could have. We are condemned because we don't do the good we know we ought to do, right? We don't live each day compelled to do good, but God does. We inadvertently follow the devil. We behave like him and it shows. That sounds like bad news, doesn't it? Have you had enough? The bad news is hard to take. It can be grinding on us because we don't like it. But it's really important to get a hold of this. we got to touch one more thing on the bad news before we can finish with it. Okay? All right, so how does God feel about all of this? He's seen all the sin from the beginning, and he'll see it all the way to the end. Every day, that's what he's seeing. You think you get mad watching the news sometimes. Sit in God's place. And all these sins are being recorded, aren't they? Every, no, nobody's getting away with anything. We want to believe that when we die, we're going to come back again and live again. Oh, I don't know why anybody wants to do that. Some of us think we'll just cease to exist. And some believe, well, I just need a little cleaning up and then I'll go to heaven. Really? After all you've heard from the word of God this morning, you really believe that's going to, what's going to happen? Where is the justice in that? What would you do if you were God? You don't need people and you hate sin. Heaven's already perfect. Why have sinners come there? These are things we don't think about because we only think from our perspective. Think about things that happen in the world that make you angry, right? And then try to imagine how much God must feel because you and I do things that make other people angry, right? But God's never done anything to make anybody angry, not righteously. There have been those who've tried to rewrite this doctrine of hell. They don't want to believe it, and rightly so. Who wants to believe it? But not believing it doesn't make it not true. It doesn't make it go away, does it? And of course, there are always the the religions that try to help us get cleaned up so we can be right with God. Well, I'll tell you something. There's no such thing in the Bible. You won't find it. Go from cover to cover. What it does say in Hebrews 9.27 is, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. That's what it says. As it should be, right? When, when injustices and crimes happen, there ought to be judgment, right? That makes sense. We understand that. You can read about this judgment if you go through the whole chapter of Revelation 20. But we're going to look at just one verse, verse 15. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Think about it. Living in forever in a lake of fire, that's as bad as it gets. Some people think that this world is hell and it's miserable here. They haven't seen anything yet. This is the clincher on the bad news, and it can't be any worse. When viewed from the perspective of God, who is the judge, it is right. It's terrible, but it's right. 
Okay, now you're ready for some good news. Do we see the bad news now? It's really there, isn't it? There really is bad news. We don't like to think about it, but God helps us. And I'm glad he does, because if he didn't tell us, we wouldn't know what kind of case we had. Well, you don't want to suffer punishment for your sins, and neither do I. Because the lake of fire is no place I want to go. It turns out that God doesn't want us to go there either. But there's a problem. There has to be punishment where the law is broken. You can't just get away with this. Somebody's got to pay the price. What can God do? He has to be just, but he doesn't want us to die. This is where, where people don't understand. What I want you to do is turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 and see if you can see the answer. If you've never understood this before, it should jump out at you. And if it doesn't, I'm going to help you. I'm going to try to help you see it. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You remember this is the good news we read about earlier? Do you see it? Let me go over it a few times and see if you can, see if you can, if you can get it if you're having trouble. Let's pull a phrase out of verse 3. It says, Christ died for our sins. Do you know how many people in this world know that, but don't know what it means? What does this dying involve? He died. Well, let's put it in a more descriptive way. Jesus suffered the punishment for my sin. How bad was that punishment going to be? Well, the lake of fire would be described as indescribable, excruciating pain, don't you think? So let's rewrite the verse again. Jesus suffered the indescribable, excruciating pain of the lake of fire for my sins. Let's add something to that. Jesus suffered indescribable, excruciating pain for my sin to save me from my sin. That, my friends, is the best news you will ever hear in your life and the most important news you will ever hear. It's also the greatest expression of love that you'll ever know. All other love is not love by comparison. In fact, most Christians say they didn't know what real love was until they understood what Jesus did for them. Now, you see why the gospel is the most important message ever, right? Some of you may be asking, well, what do I do now? I've understood What do I have to do? What can I do? Does Jesus know me? Did he really die for my sins? Well, do you remember when Eve had a choice about who to believe? Do you remember who she chose? Do you remember the stand that she took? And she demonstrated what she believed by her actions? If you now see your sin and your doom but you want to be saved just like the Corinthians did, you need to believe this message. Jesus died for your sins, and you should understand now what that means. Your belief in him means you put your trust in him for what he did for you. And as a result, like it says in John 3.16, just a phrase out of there, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
You'll take your stand, just like the Corinthians did, and, and you'll demonstrate your belief by following Jesus. And that makes all kind of sense, doesn't it? If he did that for me, how much does he care about me? Well, we'll try to measure that. Huh? If he did that for me, what should I do? Well, if, if, if I've been running my life and it was leading me to hell, I sure don't want to do that anymore, do I? I want to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. He's demonstrated his love to me. Now, how can I help but love him? Huh? That should be our response. It's the only sane response. It's not about joining a church, obeying rules. It's about trusting God and coming into a right relationship with him. That's what God wants. Is that what you want? I hope that was clear. If, if it wasn't clear, come and talk to me if you have further questions. If, if you've seen this today for the first time and you've put your trust in Christ, I'd love to know about that too. I really would. You could, you'll not have a more important decision than this one. And I hope you make the right one. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Let's go ahead and end in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this meeting. We thank you for this message that our brother John gave to us. We thank you that, yes, there is horrible news, bad news, but there is also amazingly good news that we didn't deserve to receive, didn't deserve to, to be recipients of, but you freely gave it to us. And Lord, we thank you for those that have made the decision to accept you as Savior and Lord. And Lord, if there is anybody in this room who doesn't know you, if there is somebody who has been asking themselves questions about, is there a God? What is our destiny? What happens after this life? Where do I find peace? Where do I find true joy? Where do I find true love? Lord, there's nowhere else they need to look. If they look to you and they give their life to you, you will give all of that to them. You've given it to all of us. And Lord, I just ask that if there is anybody here who is contemplating all these things, that they would just surrender their life to you, that they would ask for forgiveness of their sins, that they would give you their life wholeheartedly, and they would make you their Lord and Savior. Lord, there's nothing else like John said, there's no, no more important decision they will make in their life. There's no more important news that they will receive. And Lord, this might be their last opportunity to do so. And Lord, the devil doesn't want anyone to go to heaven. The Lord doesn't, uh, Satan doesn't want anyone's life to be changed. But Lord, we know that you can overcome all. And so we, we commit Anyone here today who doesn't know you, we ask that they would accept you as Savior. Lord, give them the peace and the comfort to make that decision, Lord. And we just thank you for this word. We thank you for the reminder that you've done so much for us and you've given us such great news. We just commit this day to you now, Lord, and I ask that you would bless everyone here. And until we resume, just be with everyone and protect everyone until we are with you one day. 
We commit this Sunday meeting to you in your name. Amen.